Welcome to Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, where I drink, discuss, and discover the world of distilled spirits. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. This is episode 116, and I'm drinking Herb Saint. With each episode of Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, you should expect that I'll be well-researched and educational, also entertaining and consistent in my reviews. Herb Saint is an absinthe substitute, and I've been curious about it for a while, so I chose to feature it on this episode. The bottle I have for the tasting is a standard 750 milliliters. Herb Saint is 50% ABV, meaning it's 100 proof, and for me, it retails for about $31 US. The bottle is essentially a dark Chardonnay wine bottle, complete with the bottom punt or indentation. This being a spirits bottle though, it has a resealable stopper that I assume to be cork that's under the silver colored foil that's on the neck of the bottle. Top of the bottle stopper is red and features the seal or logo of the brand, which is a cross in a circle with the text, a Legendre original and Herb Saint in the cross with the S at the intersection. The front label is old looking and colored beige to look like aged paper. Besides black ink, the only accent color is orange. It's a detailed label depicting a woodcut style illustration of a building that's captioned A Vieca Cafe, New Orleans, 1798. Top center of the label has the same seal as the top of the bottle, and in a scrolled banner flanking this, it reads, Legendre Herb Saint. Below the woodcut illustration, it says, The Spirit of New Orleans. Then a brief product description with proof and volume information is tucked in above the large text, Herb Saint, rendered in beige, reversed out of orange. The back label carries the same coloration as the front, and dedicates most of its space to a detailed description of how to make the official Sazerac cocktail using Herb Saint. There's also government warnings and barcode, etc. on this back label. Alright, let's go ahead and open this bottle up. It does have a nice little tear strip on the foil, if I can get a hold of it here. Get a little zip. Comes right off. And then we'll see a pop. <laughs> there we go. For the tasting, I'll be using a clean Glencairn glass. I'll be tasting the spirit neat, which is right out of the bottle at room temperature. The Glencairn allows me to see the spirit, nose the spirit, and of course, taste the spirit. However, this being an absinthe substitute, I will dilute it with a little water after the initial taste and describe that. So let's go for a pour. Just pouring it, it smells like good and plenty candy, which is a licorice or anise scent to it. In the glass, it's a interesting yellowish green color. It is clear, but the color almost looks like, a, I don't know, it made me think of like, lawn clippings that had been left out for a long time and yellowed. That doesn't sound very appealing, but that's the color that came to mind. All right, let's try it on the nose. Yeah, uh, you can feel the ethanol. It is 50% uh, ABV, so it is 100 proof. 
so you can feel the cooling of the ethanol. A very distinct black licorice or anise nose to this liqueur. There's maybe a little something else in the background. I might call it hint of cinnamon, perhaps, or maybe something vegetal. Yeah, overpowering uh, black licorice flavor there, anise. That's the primary note you get off of this. And on the palate, has some heat. Okay, let's try another taste after my palate's woken up from the ethanol. very licorice or anise flavor to it. It does have a herbaceousness on the palate. The high proof does provide an, a slight numbing to the palate. You typically do not consume this neat, um, so it's probably of no consequence the way that Herb Saint is used in absinthe as well. Very rarely do you actually just drink it neat. I like to try spirits as they come first. And now I'm going to add a few drops of water to it. You can't see this, obviously, it's an audio podcast, but as I add some water, it should experience a spontaneous emulsification, and some of the oils that are bound in with the alcohol should come out of solution, and the beverage should get cloudy. So let's see. <laughs> Indeed it does. Look at that. In absinthe, this is called the louche. All right, so now I will try it. Uh, first, I'll try it on the nose. It changes the scent a bit. Less licorice affronting the nostrils. And on the palate. Oh, wow. A little water addition improves it immensely, I would say. And typically, you should dilute it when you drink it or it's mixed in a cocktail. Yeah, it's quite nice. Almost makes it a bit sweeter, although it's not overly sweet at all. It's actually quite dry, but the water softens it by reducing the proof. And now, onto the history. Herb Saint was once described in advertising thusly. It has all the virtues of absinthe, but none of its sins. Herb Saint was created as an absinthe substitute, and that's what it is. The recipe was crafted from a French pastis formula, which itself is an absinthe substitute. Herb Saint created for itself the niche of American-made anise-flavored spirit. And if you don't know, the reason for needing an absinthe substitute was real absinthe was banned due to dubious health claims, pressure from the wine industry, the temperance movement, and government scapegoating it for social ills. Belgium was first to ban absinthe in 1906, followed by Switzerland in 1910, France in 1912, and the United States in 1915. Yet those who had a taste for it still wanted it, thus substitutes arose, most notably pastis in France. All of these retained the anise or licorice flavor, but left out the grand wormwood with its purported hallucinogenic compound, thujone. For more on the history of absinthe, 
Listen to episode 50 on Lucid Absinthe. J. Marion Legendre is credited with having invented Herb Saint in 1934 in New Orleans, Louisiana. But of course, there's more to this story. Herb Saint really came about during Prohibition, which was the law of the land in the U.S. from 1920 to 1933. During Prohibition, J. Marion Legendre, the J having stood for Joseph, ran a successful drugstore or pharmacy business, first with his father, then on his own after his father's death in 1926. Legendre would have been about 28 years old when his father died, and was in the drug business until 1958, having been quite successful at it. Most of the early profits came from the fact that Legendre had the largest permit to buy and sell prescription whiskey in the South. The wonderful loophole of prohibition when your doctor could prescribe you whiskey and the pharmacist filled it. It actually kept a small number of distillers afloat during those dark years. Following the repeal of Prohibition, Le Genre stayed in, or rather leaned, into the liquor business by leaning on a fraternity brother who worked in government and was able to get him the first rectifier's license in the South. A rectifier's license allowed Le Genre to manufacture and blend alcoholic beverages for sale and consumption, and his license went into effect December of 1933, immediately following repeal. It's with this license that Legendre was able to create Herb Saint. This begs the question, though, of why choose to make an anise-flavored spirit that not many Americans had a taste for? For this answer, we need to go back in time further to pre-Prohibition and World War I. Legendre served in the war and was stationed on the west coast of France as part of the intelligence service. During his training, or perhaps before the war, Legendre had made a good friend by the name of Reginald P. Parker. The son of a successful sheep rancher in Australia, he relocated to New Orleans with his sickly mother. This was some time after his father took his own life following financial ruin as a result of two years of drought causing him to lose his flock. The New Orleans climate seemed to suit Reginald's mother. Reginald Parker had been educated in Europe and was fluent in English, French, and German, and perhaps destined to be a diplomat. However, the war called upon him and his talents were put to use in the intelligence service alongside Legendre. Parker was stationed in Marseille on the southern coast of France. He boarded with a family in Marseille who loved to prepare and drink pastis. During the wartime years of 1914 to 1918, absinthe had already been banned, but pastis had filled the void. Parker gained a fondness for it as well, and the recipe was given to him along with a small supply of the necessary herbs needed for the drink. Parker and Legendre both survived the war, and upon returning to New Orleans, Parker had a recipe and small amount of herbs and ingredients for making pastis, but with prohibition having set in, alcohol would seemingly be the hardest ingredient to get. Of course, Legendre had easy access to plenty of prescription alcohol, and the two friends then shared several batches of illicit homemade pastis, which they enjoyed. When the supply of herbs ran out, Parker asked Legendre to try and import what was needed from France, which he was able to do. Parker gave Legendre a copy of the recipe, and seeing the end of Prohibition on the horizon, 
Legendre ordered and had on hand a ready supply of the herbs and other ingredients needed to make what was to be named Herb Saint. But this drink wasn't originally named Herb Saint. It actually came to market as Legendre Absinthe and bore that name for about three months, from December 1933 until around March of the following year, when the Federal Alcohol Control Commission would require Legendre to remove the word absinthe from the product. The choice of Herb Saint as the replacement for absinthe came from the French or Creole term for wormwood, the sacred herb, l'herbe saint. Others have claimed it's an anagram of absinthe with an R added, but that may be coincidental. Originally bottled at 120 and 100 proof, it was sold in several sizes in a bottle nearly identical to the version I have today. The very first production took place in the finished attic of Legendre's home in New Orleans, but was quickly moved to the second floor of the Legendre building, a commercial building Legendre had acquired due to his thriving drugstore business. From there, production was later moved to a four-story building elsewhere in New Orleans that Legendre had purchased that also provided more space to grow. However, sales didn't seem to be spectacular early on. Sure, post-prohibition, the public was thirsty for almost any legal drink, and Herb St. grew, but Legendre noted that he would only do production runs two weeks a month, idling his plant for the rest of the month in order to cut expenses. A salesman was hired who was described as a prominent citizen, and he was employed to promote Herb St. He was responsible for getting wholesalers to take an initial stock of Herb St., He struck a guaranteed buyback deal in order to get wider distribution, but repeat orders were slow to come in, and Legendre compared his product to Angostura Bitters, where there was a small but steady demand for the product with some notable key markets with high demand. For Herb Saint, one of these markets was the hometown of New Orleans. In an effort to increase demand, Legendre poured his profits from the enterprise back into it in the form of advertising and promotions. This yielded a number of booklets and billboards along with other promotional materials. And in crafting the story of Herb Saint, they outright fabricated some of the origin story. It was purported to be a recipe handed down through the Legendre family from father to son. Knowing this to not be true, Legendre said his salesman told him that it was of no great importance. And nobody ever seemed to call him on the claim. However, despite increasing awareness of Herb Saint, Legendre said consumption did not increase in proportion to his advertising expenses. A number of companion products were introduced to help bolster sales, but none helped. Herb Saint supported itself. It didn't seem to be losing money, but Legendre lamented that his employees were making a fair living, yet the business required all the profits be used for advertising to maintain demand. As he was still a successful pharmacist and by this point involved in commercial real estate, the manufacture and sale of Herb Saint was something he no longer wanted to put effort into. It ran as a fairly static business with Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, and New Orleans making up the bulk of the sales. Despite the continual advertising, the brand never really grew. So, in an effort to recoup some of his investment, Legendre sold Herb Saint and the Legendre and Company rectifying business to another local New Orleans rectifier who he likely knew. This was Sazerac and Company. Sazerac was apparently looking for additional products to keep their production plant busy, and Herb Saint looked like a good acquisition for them. 
1949, the two companies came to an agreement and Herbsaint was sold for an undisclosed sum. However, there was a royalty component included in the deal where Sazerac agreed to pay Legendre $2.50 a case until the production and payments made equaled $50,000. That's 20,000 cases. And it apparently took several years for Sazerac to satisfy the deal. Once Sazerac owned the brand, they tweaked the recipe, packaging, and lowered the proof to 90 in the mid-1950s. Other changes seem to have been made, and by the early 1970s, only the 90-proof variant that had changed in formulation from the Legendre original was what remained available for sale. Rather amazing to me, however, is the fact that Herb Saint seems to have never gone out of production. Surely low volume in the last quarter of the last century. Sazerac stuck with it. With the cocktail revolution of the early 2000s, I suspect sales ticked up a bit. For the 75th anniversary of the brand in 2009, Sazerac resurrected the original formula and packaging, reviving a historic spirit in the process. Packaged as Herb Saint Original, it's the 100-proof version I have today. I cannot confirm if the lower-proof version is still being produced. It's not available in my state, and Herb Saint doesn't have a website of its own. The listing on the Sazerac website only shows the original. You may still run across it in some markets, but almost certainly the Herb Saint original will be of better quality, as the 90-proof version was said to be made with flavor extracts. This is a perfect segue into how it's made. I don't have any specifics. I don't even know any confirmed ingredients. Herb Saint is not a very popular spirit, and it's only thanks to some collectors that have published their information online that I was able to capture this much of the story. Of course, I'll provide links and show notes to those sources. But for production, well, from press reports in 2009, it was said that Sazerac dug into their archives to get the original recipe for Herb Saint. Also, the herbs were said to be soaked in the alcohol in a large tea bag to macerate them. There's definitely anise in this and neutral alcohol as the base. Beyond that, I simply don't know. But what I do know is Sazerac is quite successful and has the manufacturing capabilities to produce a wide range of quality spirits. Now on to cocktails and consumption. The Sazerac cocktail is mostly what Herb Saint is known for, yet even though the method of preparation is fully half of the back label on the bottle, the recipe only calls for a quarter ounce of the spirit and it's used as a glass rinse with most of the liquid being discarded prior to adding the other ingredients to the glass. A shame really, but as a rinse that's a traditional use for absinthe in cocktails, one that doesn't use much volume either. With properly measured pours, a single bottle of Herb Saint could make 100 Sazerac cocktails. No wonder repeat orders were slow. The second recipe featured on the back label is the Herb Saint Frappe. This appears across the internet as well, and it is a very simple serve, varying based upon the source, even changing over time from Herb Saint themselves. It consists of two ounces of Herb Saint with simple syrup and ice, either shaken and strained or stirred and served with the ice sometimes with some club soda added. As it exhibits spontaneous emulsification, or in absinthe terms, the louche, you could drink it as you may absinthe served with a cold water fountain. So in summary, what do I think of Herb Saint? 
To be honest, I probably won't drink much of it. It's essentially absinthe that tastes, smells, and acts like absinthe, so that's how I will use it. I'll probably drink it occasionally. I think one of the main things that Herb Saint has going for it over absinthe is the price. 750 milliliters is almost half the price of a similar sized absinthe from a major brand. And, you know, other than the wormwood, it's essentially the same thing. I definitely appreciate the story as well. I was surprised to find this much detail on Herb Saint, and I'm glad that I did. I'll provide the links. You should take a look if you have the time. And, you know, I got to hand it to Sazerac for really keeping the brand alive. Herb Saint is never going to be a hugely successful mass market appeal spirit, but it's definitely got a place. It is indeed original. It is right after Prohibition. Maybe one of the first legally produced new spirits after Prohibition. And, you know, it's got heritage. So that's nice. And it seems that they've done it well. Packaging looks identical to vintage bottles I've seen. So that's going to do it for this episode of Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. Please subscribe and share. Tell your friends. Show notes are on liquorandliqueurconnoisseur.com. You can find the show on your favorite podcast platform. I'm also fairly active on social media. Look for me on Instagram and Facebook. I love hearing from my listeners, so if there's a spirit you'd like me to feature in an upcoming episode, please do reach out. And as always, thank you for listening.